Welcome to the second episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. Joining me today to talk about humanizing machines and the nature of synthetic sound is American composer, pianist, and synth music icon, Suzanne Chiang. Suzanne is perhaps best known for her work at the Buchla Modular Synthesizer, helping to pioneer one of electronic music's earliest forms in the 1970s, alongside Don Buchla himself. With her production design company Chiani Musica, she composed scores and sounds for television, with a specialty in sound effects, logos, and loops. You'd probably recognize her Coca-Cola pop and pour sound. Or even as the voice of the Xenon pinball machine. In the 1980s, she began recording music in a genre that would come to be known as New Age, racking up five Grammy nominations with releases under labels like Private Music, Atlantic, and her own Seventh Wave Records. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure, and lovely to meet you. I want to talk about this interview that you did with Donato last year. And he tells a story in the beginning where he says that hearing your voice come out of the Xenon pinball machine was something he never forgot because he had never had a machine talking to him before. Um, I thought that was so sweet. (laughs) What can you tell me about the idea of making machines talk? Well, that that project, which was the first pinball with a female voice, you know, has has stayed to this day as an iconic instrument. I was given the I was inducted into the Pinball Hall of Fame <laughs> just like a year ago uh, for Xenon. For me, you know, the project was really a techno project about you know really getting in there and designing the tech technology of the sound but in fact what most people remember and care about is the sound of the voice so it's very seductive you know i i seriously you know wanted to make a sexy a sexy game and <laughs> this i is something yeah. donato said as well yeah really fucked up his childhood hearing, hearing <laughs> that voice <laughs> i think a lot of young men have a similar <laughs> yeah. problem because i was very you know flir- i am very flirtatious uh, but, you know, try me again. <laughs> and, you know, I was just being playful. That's so good. <laughs> yeah. And when you put the quarter in, it goes, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so how did it feel to be doing something like that, making machines talk in the most kind of basic sense, lending your voice to something? Well, what always intrigued me, you know, when you're in technology, you're always excited by the frontier. You know, we live on the edge, that edge, because technology was this ever-changing thing you know every day you wake up and it's different and so I love this project because it was frontier it was the edge it was new different you know a new possibility the first right so uh, that was always what I loved about any project was that we could do something uh, special and new and never done before I was speaking to Morton Subotnik actually a couple of years ago, and he was saying that at the time when the Bukla was first coming out, he, it's not that they necessarily knew that they were the first, but they knew that they were doing something big. Is that kind of how you felt? Uh, 
Well, in terms of Buchla, you know, Don, uh, Mort Zabotnik was there in 63. I came along in 68. So I, I like when I came along because by that time, Don Buchla had already advanced his ideas about what he was doing. And it was very different from how it started. When it started, the idea was, well, let's make a machine that can make, you know, interesting sounds. And then we'll record the sounds and, you know, layer them and make pieces of music. And by the time I came along, Don had already crystallized the concept that he was making a, an instrument, a live performance instrument. And for Mort, it was never about that. So the fact that I came along five years later, it was a whole new uh, bukla. So I, I liked when I came along. <laughs> <laughs> so how does it feel to give a voice to a machine these days? Like, do you consider your live performances giving machines a voice? Uh, well, the machines give me a voice, honestly. You know, uh, it's very interactive. It's all a partnership. It's a relationship. It's intimate. It's, you know, involving. It's, uh, it's I love it. You know, I... I just enjoy, you know, you're very much in the moment. Mm. You know, when are we ever in the moment? You know, when we're with a child, mm. because children live in the moment, or if we're in stress, or if we're in a whatever. But, you know, being able to uh, be alive in the moment is a, is a wonderful experience. It's a wonderful feeling. Mm. Mm. I, th I think that for a lot of people electronic music can be somewhat challenging because they feel that there's not enough kind of human quality in it. So I'm just wondering why you think that we are so concerned with humanizing synthetic sound or humanizing machines in some way. Well, machines are, um, I, I think the goal of the machine is actually to replicate uh, the human in some way. You know, we're creating mirrors of ourselves, our brains, uh, you know, these we imbue these machines with human attributes because that's who we are. Mm. So, you know, the machine is warm. The machine is responsive. Mm. The nice thing, you know, that we used to love about machines is that they behaved like a machine, mm. uh, you know, that you could count on them. Whereas on humans, sometimes you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> but in fact, these machines are so human that they don't always behave like machines. Actually, Helena Hauf was saying something to me that's quite similar about how even if she does everything right with her 303 that she works with, it can still completely go haywire and do something completely different. And that's something she really loves about it because it's yes. very unpredictable, much like her music. Yes, yes. So going back to this uh, kind of humanizing of electronics, do you think that it was or it is perhaps a reaction based on fear? You know, for me, because I'm female, my my automatic organic perception of music with these machines was that it was sensual. I, I really do think, you know, that there are different paradigms and, and I think there's, uh, you know, the rhythmic paradigm of pumping, you know, music, which has been around for a while. I think electronics gave us a different possibility because you could, you could sustain and you could build, and the energy system of, of, of woman is different mm. from that of a man. And that's what I thought electronics, you know, gave me the ability to be very slow. You know, everything, 
it's easy to keep a rhythm if it's fast. It's very hard to keep a rhythm if it's very slow. So electronics, you know, to me that was sensuality, that steady, slow, safe uh, environment that you could create. Mm. Was that something that was quite different from popular music at the time? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I my first album, my first decision was, okay, uh, I I had a, a my first piece that I, uh, well, not the first piece, the third piece, um, I just slowed it down to half speed, mm. because, yeah, I mean, nothing happened at half speed, you it was impossible to play. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel like there was kind of a, I don't know, a, a hesitancy towards? this slow kind of sensual music that you were putting out was it did were people responsive to it or were people a bit confused you know it's funny because I lived in New York City at the time in, in a very fast paced um I think my music was an antidote to that in many ways and also I visited the Caribbean you know the music the concept of the music was born on the ocean in this paradise these you know, the paradise of the Caribbean, and which was stunning to me after New York City. You know, the contrast of coming from, you know, that all those skyscrapers and all that noise and all that dirt and then landing on a perfect beach with the sound of the waves. It was like I needed that. Um, did people, I think people, um, they got it. You know, it's seductive. You don't have to think. You just feel it was it was a sensual uh, music that people understood, and and you know I made it to be understood. Uh, so you know my early music was very abstract in the bukla, and then by the time I you know got myself together enough to record, I had already decided to you know take my classical background and you know blend it or mix it. Maria to my techno background. I think it's interesting that you said you uh, you were making music for it to be understood. Are you still approaching it like that today? I think it, my need to be understood was born of my years of playing the bukla when nobody understood. And I got very lonely. You know, there was such a big gap. And, and I just, God, I, was, I didn't know it was going to be so hard for people to get it. You know, I just thought, oh, my God. And, and then I gave up, you know. And uh, I did want to be understood. Um, and what was the question? Is that still how you're approaching it today? Oh, n today there is a listening. I don't... I have two identities now. You know, the identity that I have as a live bukla player is very freeing to me. Because I here I am, I, it's, I'm in my abstract phase. You know, you think of it as a visual artist. And maybe you start out, you know, drawing models and... Uh, or, you know, in my case, I, I went abstract young, and then I came back to a more figurative language. And now I'm back into abstract, and you know what? I don't care if you understand me or not. But the fact is that the kids do understand because they all are familiar with these instruments. Even if they don't know the bukla, per se, they know what's going on. You mentioned this listening. Do you think people are better listeners today? Well, listening is um, an educated response. Uh, we, we, we learn how to, you know, we all hear. 
I hear those bells. But, you know, if I were educated, I might know what they were saying. Oh, those are the bells that started in the 1600s, and they symbolized the, you know, the end of the funeral at the church, you know. So there are different ways of, of understanding what comes to our ears. And when I say there's a listening now, I know that when I do something in the moment, like changing a filter or changing an envelope or moving a spatial parameter of the sound, that they can actually hear that, that they, they hear it. Otherwise, you don't hear it. You just say, oh, I don't know what that was. You know, everybody thinks it all sounds alike. But when you have an, a listening, you can make distinction. And I feel that my audience now can make distinctions, and I enjoy playing into that. It must be kind of a relief to not have to feel like you have to really explain yourself so much anymore. Yeah, but I'm still very didactic. <laughs> you know, I am because my early Buchla life was all about, uh, you know, teaching people what it was. And now I'm just learning again. You know, I'm back. And uh, I'm just learning what people know. So you once said that some people think that machines are inanimate, but for those of us who play them, we know they are alive. How does that idea come into play when you're lending your voice to a machine? Well, you know, it's a relationship. So uh, you're getting to know this is a complex, complex being. And uh, it takes a long time to develop, you know, a deep relationship with a machine. And it's, it, you know, it goes on and on and on. It's not boring, right? It's not like you know it. You're always exploring and learning more. And that's why it's so interesting. And, uh, oh, that's fun. <laughs> um, so you hear, what I like about uh, when I listen to music, and I've been listening to a lot here at the festival, is whether I can sense the identity of the performer. You know, some music to me is just very... Um, uh, generic and some of it really has an identity and I'm always more attracted when I can sense the artist in this in the communication of course how do you think that you your identity comes out in your music well um, you know I'm I'm there in the moment making decisions every split second about what to do and people know that they, they feel it. They get that, you know, this is not a sample. It's not an automatic. It's not pre-recorded. It's not even, you know, uh, it, it, it didn't exist before that moment. It doesn't mean it's completely chaotic because I have uh, the materials that I use that are known, right? The sequences are known and my techniques are known. You know, I know how to do certain things because I've worked at it. You develop techniques. Of course. I mean, do you think that you kind of t touched on this briefly, but do you think that you'll ever really know your machine 100% through and through like the back of your hand? Well, you know, I mean, it always has problems. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, you know, the issue. Um, I dream of having you know, a machine that's more consistent and that will stay in tune and that I don't have to worry about 
all the time? Like, will it make it? You know, every time I open that case before a concert, I don't know what's going to be in there. Yeah, I, I mean, I, what is it like traveling with such such a large amount of gear? I try to keep it small, but honestly, I never, I, I feel like I'm on this, like, magical roll now, you know, because I haven't had any catastrophes. It's like, how long can this last? <laughs> you know? I mean, yesterday, Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, yesterday, some uh, two musicians, their equipment didn't arrive, so they couldn't play. So, oh. you know, things happen. I mean, if the bukla breaks, that'll be that. You know, I'm ready for it because, you know, in a way, I've already, I've already experienced that, so I'm ready for it. I'm ready for the great you know, tragedy. <laughs> Do you think that machines only come alive when we play them? They can play themselves just fine if you, you know, set them up properly. So, yeah, they don't, they don't need us, you know, all the time. I used to do these wonderful um, installation pieces where I would set up an interactive composition, you know, within the machine, and it would play for a month. And it was always interesting, and it was, you know, a self It was a, a generated, self-generated composition, and uh, beautiful. What is it like for you, kind of leaving your machines up to their own devices like that? Like, was that a daunting task to not be there in the moment, as you mentioned before? Well, you know, it's a wonderful. The, the only thing is that it occupies the whole machine. So if you if you set up an installation on the machine, you can't go in there and just play it in another way because you know that those are very complex patches. In order to get an interesting setup, you know, it's very intricate. I, it doesn't have to be, but I like them, you know, with a lot of uh, interactive uh, aspects. So you know, it's kind of like hands off at that point. <laughs> <laughs> So I read that in your earlier days, record companies were like a bit turned off by the fully electronic nature of your sound. You'd show up to a recording and they'd be like, where's your guitar, where are your, where are your instruments? Do you think that there was a transitional phase where synthetic sound was concerned? We mentioned this a bit earlier about just kind of having people understand what you're doing. Do you think that we're in some ways still going through with that transitional phase? Well, I think that, um, you know, the, the fate of early, you know, these early instruments was completely aborted. Uh, what happened was that, you know, there were things like switched on Bach, which was Baroque music, you know, and we didn't even use the word synthesizer, you know, because it connoted synthetic. Mm -hmm. And, and there's nothing synthetic about the sound. And, and it wasn't about, you know, the, the public got confused. They thought it was a keyboard instrument, and they thought it could uh, make sounds like flutes and violins, and then the musicians' union got upset because they thought, oh, well, you're replacing musicians. You're synthesizing, you know, humans. And, you know, there was a lot of... Uh, nobody understood. So here we are 40 years later, and uh, there's a chance that this time we'll explore that new possibility that we didn't get to you know where people you know i mean there's still it's a huge area electronic music is huge it's everything from dj music to you know sampling mm -hmm. and uh but the part that i'm interested in is the live uh modular live analog really modular performance and i i think in order to have a to be able to play live 
You need a good instrument. You need an instrument that talks back to you, that lets you know what's going on. And so I think, you know, it's, you can't blame people if they don't want to perform live modular. It's like really difficult because machines aren't giving enough information. So, you know, my hope is that, you know, I I gave a class um, at Berklee College of Music in Boston, and we had four analog, you know, Eurorack musicians all at once, and it was unbelievable. I mean, there were certain interconnective uh, things, like the clock was interconnected, so anybody could change the tempo of everybody. And that was important to keep everybody synchronized. Uh, but other than that, it was just people listening to each other and responding to their instruments. And it was really magical. I'm, I'm ex- that's what excites me. <laughs> that's what excites me is live, you know, live in the moment, electronic music, no samples. So what have been some of your favorite live experiences? Well, I've been on tour now for almost two years, right, all over the place, and uh, it's all festivals. It's really amazing. Like, God, another festival. (laughs) In your interview with Donato, you were saying that it was sometimes frustrating for you because companies would want your music to sound like it was made with an instrument. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Well, I think what happened, you know, record companies are famous for not being innovative, but for seeing what was successful and then wanting more of that. So when a switched on Bach happened, everybody wanted, you know, a switched on classical music. My first record deal actually was even worse though. I I didn't sign it, but I was um, offered a deal by Fantasy Records in Berkeley and I was so excited, you know, because I thought I was going to be recording my music. And I got to the studio and the contract said, you'll make the sounds of the end of the world. You know, explosion, uh, the apocalypse and everything. And I said, no, that's not, you know, that's what people thought the music was about. They thought electronics was like, you know, uh, aliens mm. and outer space. And right, like weirdly negative connotations, I think. I mean, stupid. I mean, just like, oh my God, no, I'm not doing that. I don't care if I can do it. I'm not doing it. I think there's probably at least some frustration inherent in that because the point of making digital sounds is to make them sound digital. I mean, would you say? Like if you really wanted to have a completely real sounding or natural sounding sound, then you would just absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there was a period when everybody was trying to do orchestrations, you know, and and killing themselves, you know, with all this detail. You'd have a a library of samples of orchestra with, you know, 46 different violin attacks and 100. It's like, hello, just go hire an an orchestra. So how does that come into that concept come into play when you're thinking about something like the Coca-Cola pop and pour sound, um, which is a digital recreation of a real sound? It's actually um, a digital interpretation. interpretation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you know, for me, I wasn't even aware of all that. Like I, I today, I was walking by and I heard, you know, they just released my fish music, you know, it's Finders Keepers. This is an old, old, old thing I did in 70, like 71 or something. And I never realized until somebody brought it to my attention that fish don't 
sound like that. I mean, <laughs> it's like, of course they do. That's what fish sound like when they're swimming by. So I think there's this confusion in the imagination. And with electronics, you know, you can create so, many, so much poetry. Your palette is so imaginary that sometimes you don't even realize that you're working in, a, in an imaginary world because it seems so real. It really does sound like fish. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that you say that. I hadn't thought of it quite like that. It's, I guess it's similar to how people see colors, maybe like something that I would consider green, maybe you see as blue. For right. Yeah. Um, was there any point where you, when you were making the Coca-Cola pop and pour sound, was there any point where you felt like it needed to sound more or less like the real thing? When you're, when you're designing sound, you know, you take the sound apart. And so, you know, the elements of that were the bubbles, which were completely imaginary because bubbles don't sound like that, mm. right? The fizz, which is more real, but it wasn't real fizz. You know, it was a white noise in, in the filter. So um, the idea is to trigger familiarity and identity, you know, in the listener. So when people hear that, they say, oh, yeah, that's what it sounds like mm -hmm. when you open a bottle of Coke, even though it doesn't sound like mm -hmm. that in real life. So I think people are very willing to accept uh, a, a translation, you know, that we, we are really open to uh, new sounds. I was going to ask you what the reaction was like to that sound, because I'm sure it was not a very common thing to hear at that time well the funny thing was the producer that I worked with uh, Billy Davis was an amazing guy he was a black producer who had started at Motown he was one of the first uh, people starting Motown and so he'd come from Detroit and he was very sophisticated they brought him to New York to bring all the famous R&B singers to Coca-Cola. So the idea was that Coca-Cola would have the best music in the whole world. They'd use these great artists. Before that, they didn't hire artists to do uh, advertising music. So here I'm dealing with this brilliant black uh, R&B music producer. And, you know, he, he, you know, he looks at this machine and it's like, you know, it was a complete alien, but he was very calm and you know, he was an enlightened human. And so with through his patience and allowing me to do this, we, we, we got that. I give him, uh, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting historic moment. And I learned so much from him. It's interesting that you talk about this producer's kind of calm uh, acceptance of this machine that was perhaps very alien to him. On the clip of you on Letterman, I felt like it was quite the opposite to that. They didn't know how to react. And I think that David Letterman was really uncomfortable. Yeah, it seemed, it seemed that way. And so I think I got the upper hand though. I think I had more laughs at his expense yeah. <laughs> than he did at mine. <laughs> Is it somehow daunting for you that the sounds you've made will live on forever? You know, I don't think about that. I don't think there is a forever. Honestly, I think if, I, I, I don't have any illusions about forever. 
uh, I think, you know, we're in the moment. I'm surprised that anything endures at all, you know? Uh, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I know when Andy started to release at Finders Keepers, when he started to release my early music, and I thought, why would anybody want to hear that? <laughs> you know, really? And now I, I'm understanding more that there is kind of a, an historic purpose in certain things, that there is an interest in, in our continuity and where we came from and where we go, that I think that that story of our creativity is, is important. And to be part of that, um, you know, you're part of that anyway, just by being alive and uh, you meet people. And people are influenced. And there's the connection. So I don't think your music has to be... You know, women women get used to being invisible. We don't expect anybody to carry on our legacy or anything, you know, because it never happened. You know, Clara Schumann was an amazing composer. And you'll, you never hear her music. Uh, and, and so I think... You know, as as women, we're just a little bit more recessive in that area. I don't think about it. You think more about the past, perhaps, than the future, necessarily. Uh, well, I have been thinking about the past a lot, but that's because uh, we had unfinished business in the past. You know, we, we got to a point, and then it it got aborted you know the the uh, the evolution of the instrument stopped and so i think you know my interest now is to connect that past with the future how are you doing that exactly well that's why i'm playing the bukla because i I play the bukla and i don't expect it's interesting because other people have buklas they don't and i don't think it's interesting because other people will get buklas because they won't uh, but I think what's interesting is to see what this genius designer made possible. I'm just one voice. I mean, there's so many, you know, ways to do this. But I, I play, you know, the modular. I don't play the easel. I don't play the whatever. Uh, I don't use samples. I don't use. Uh, I don't use Ableton. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's what I'm interested in, just showing that you can actually uh, interact with the machine live. I mean, I mean, you know, the Buchla, everybody says, oh, it's so expensive. You know, nobody can get a Buchla anyway. But designers can make new, in, it, it, everything's inexpensive now. I had a machine in New York that cost over $200,000. You know, the Sinclair. It was much more expensive in the early days. So nobody can complain. <laughs> <laughs> Are you worried that the Bukla is a dying art form? I think, you know, I like to hold the distinction between the conceptual reality of a thing and the physical reality. So the Bukla as a physical reality... You know, they are doing, still making some clones, so you can get copies of modules. Uh, but I think what we need to learn is the concepts so that that can be expressed 
in a you know in a new design by mm-hmm. somebody else. So it's not just what was there physically, but what were the ideas that this man had? I mean, what were his ideas? You know, he said, oh, why should a keyboard be shaped, you know, like that? It should be shaped. Pick up your hand. And it's like this. It's not like this. So the keyboard is, you know, follows your body. You know, so he was a thinker. He was Leonardo da Vinci, you know, he... You know, you need to be stubborn, and he was stubborn. You know, he never bent to the market. So maybe he didn't have, uh, he was very successful, but he was not, you know, Moog. And was Moog a better machine? No. Would you say that you're stubborn in the same ways as he was? Yes. That's, that's why I, you know, I have certain non-negotiable needs you know like quadraphonic yeah so going back to making any sound imaginable uh what are your thoughts on that do you think it's possible to make any sound imaginable well uh as an exercise like let me imagine the sound of a bear uh eating soup or you know (laughs) and now let's design that i mean you know, that's how I started out. Uh, my first, you know, album was Voices of Packaged Souls. So it was the sound of an eye tearing, the sound of an old man loving, the sound of heat, the sound of cold. And yes, of course, in poetry, you can, you can make any, any sound. But if you're talking about making literally any sound, uh, I think that's a misreading uh, of the universe because um, we have we have a world of you know physical sounds that we've all decided are better at being made by physical <laughs> physical means you know um, electronics are um, are a separate vocabulary a separate world so it's not about to me, anyway, it's not about making any sound like I can make the sound of the slap on the wood. Uh, I don't want to. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But um, I guess theoretically, I mean, uh, talking about the infinite, what fascinates me about infinity is that it comes in different sizes. You can have an infinite set of numbers divisible by 10 and an infinite set of numbers divisible by 5. And you'd say, well, the second set is twice the, in, you know, the size of the mm-hmm. first set. But mm-hmm. in fact, they're both infinite. You mentioned the sounds on Voices of Packaged Souls. And you said that one was a man, an old man loving. How do you kind of hear those sounds in your head? Well, you know what? I mean, that sound, uh, my sister had just given birth to a baby, and they were so excited, they sent me a recording of the baby, the sounds that the baby made. And I took those sounds, and it was amazing. I, I slowed them way down, you know, on the tape recorder, and it sounded just like an old man, <laughs> loving. It was, and you know what? Nobody knows that. Nobody knows that it's a baby. 
but it is. So, you know, uh, there are discoveries when you're going for something, when you're looking for an idea, you experiment and you, you know, you find it. Do you find your ideas come more naturally or you are often looking for an idea? Well, looking for an idea, um, I don't know. Um, I, I like to think, you know, I think in like a project sense, you know, I, my projects are somehow uh, frequently framed by the concept of, say, an album or, you know, making an album or making a song. You know, I think that to create, we do need some kind of limitation, mm-hmm. a, a frame to work in. Otherwise, it's just completely, you know, overwhelming. And so uh, ideas, uh, you know, we find a container and then we create into that. I wonder if there's also maybe a tension that exists within creating interpretations of real sounds like the pop and pour for example that we spoke about earlier I wonder if it's kind of creating this imagined perfection that obviously doesn't exist in real life I I sometimes think of it as like the platonic ideal you know Plato said there is you know the perfect chair the concept of the perfect chair up there and all real chairs are some way (laughs) derived from that perfection, that idea. So uh, I think when you're designing, uh, you know, you you are in a way trying to lift something up into some uh, uh, perfection in a way because you you have, you know, you have a lot of control. You can please yourself. You can say, oh, I don't like this, I'll change it. And in that process, you really can come up with the thing that pleases you the most. Do you think that those kind of very perfect sounds somehow make reality not good enough? Yeah, reality. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the problem with reality, not here right now, this is a wonderful reality that Mm -hmm. we're in right now. But the problem with reality is it has too many interruptions. You know, there's no bubble, there's no flow, there's no, uh, it's just all bombardment. And and if we don't have any bombardment at all, we, we go to sleep, you know, we get bored. You know, so finding that balance of energy where, uh, you know, you, you're in a consistent, uh, timeless space for creativity I think it needs to be timeless I know I did a lot of creating like by the clock like we need that sound by tomorrow at 9 a.m and you know you do that I mean it's a wonderful discipline to do that and and I think we do need clocks you know I say oh I'm going to release my album in December and uh, unless I have a deadline it's not going to happen (laughs) (laughs) so that's real that's very real but um reality is uh interruptive going back to the the sound that you mentioned that your sister sent you of the baby 
do you work often with kind of field recordings in that sense? Well, there was a period when I did, you know, because, uh, you know, in the beginning, you know, we had a tape recorder, just two channels. And, you know, you use the tools that you had then. And uh, recording was and manipulating and cutting the tape, you know, music concrete. You physically cut the tape up into little pieces and spliced it together again. And you could, you know, splice the tape in a certain shape that would give it, you know, an envelope and everything. So, yeah, this, this was part of the design um, of the early days. And uh, I forget what the question was. Uh, I was asking if you do a lot of field recordings. Oh, and then, yeah, I had a great time uh, when the binaural recording came in. I loved that. And I went all over with the binaural head, you know, and recorded things. And that's on my album. Um, I think it's... Uh, uh, mm, I forget which one it is, but anyway, I have binaural, you know, sound woven in a piece called Lumiere, and it's very—I I mean, I love that. That was a stage. Um, I went to Africa and I recorded. You know, I, we had uh, the first digital recorders. Uh, I even forget what it was called. Studer, a little Studer recorder. I took that to uh, Africa, and I had a, a shotgun microphone. You know, and you could pick up sounds mm -hmm. from far away. And yeah, I mean, that was all a fascination. But, um, and I love, I love that uh, work. You know, I've heard a lot of that in this festival of really beautiful, selected sounds used, recordings of sounds. Mm -hmm. I, I love that when it's combined, you know, like this sound right now, the little cicadas. And I, I love to hear that. I don't do that right now, but... I mean, when I made my waves, you know, in the first album, Seven Waves, um, everybody thought those were recorded, but they weren't. Were, were there the same type of waves in your show last night? Yeah, With exactly. The those were Buchla waves, mm. yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting, field recordings, because they are somehow like a heightened reality, even though they're just a real sound being yes. recorded like how do you think that the kind of recording and then playing of these sounds alters their reality well they're obviously in a different context mm -hmm. I mean if I play these cicadas here it's one thing if I play them in New York City it, it's another mm -hmm. um, but what's nice about you know the, the, the sounds that you find in nature is that they have a, a spatial quality and uh, I think you know the idea of just listening you know being the recorder it's selective you know our perception we are not microphones that take in everything equally our brains automatically focus on you know in certain ways, whether it's the cocktail effect, you know, where you're zeroing in on the conversation across the room. But we have, uh, you know, our system of hearing is already organizing our universe. You once said that field recordings are a means of using electronics to get closer to nature. What did you mean by that exactly? Well, um... I don't do field recordings now, but certainly I have. I've had, you know, episodes where that was a very big focus for me. 
And now I live in nature. I mean, I live with the sound of the ocean, the sound of the birds, the sound of the mosquitoes, whatever, you know. But that's my, my ambient sound. And what I notice is that um, I tune in and tune out. So anytime I want to, I can hear the ocean. But if I don't tune into it, even though it's there, I honestly don't hear it. So I've trained myself to, you know, tune in. Tune in. Now it's time to take a little sound break and tune in, you know, to what's there. So, yeah, I mean, if you're using field recordings, uh, you know, they're in your face. They're very present. And uh, see, my list sound, for instance... This is a, this is both, uh, you know, it crosses the line, right? It's kind of like this is the sound you would have heard if you had gone out into the jungle at night. Is it really that? No. <laughs> but it sounds like that. What are some of your favorite sounds to make? The, this is what I always say. You know, I'm really not interested in sound. I don't mean this in a bad way. But I, I think of sound as a byproduct of another action. So I'm interested in movement. And when I'm making things move, sounds result from that. But it's a byproduct. I'm not, if I have a good drum sound, I'm not trying to make a good drum sound. I'm making a rhythm. And, and the sound emerges as a drum sound because it's rhythmic. I don't like a literal sound. That's why I don't use... I mean, I have used drum machines and things, but I like a sound that's always alive and moving. So if I use a sample, it's already static. And I live in a very liquid... I mean, I don't always live in this world. It's my Buchla world. I also do studio recordings where I'm, you know, I make a particular sound and then I record it. But I always like the sound to have motion. I, I don't like anything that sits still. There was definitely a lot of motion in your set last <laughs> right, night. Right, right. <laughs> so you were saying that uh, you don't want to make a literal sound. What is a literal sound exactly? Well, you know, there's this whole, you know, ep history in electronic music of, you know, trying to replicate sounds. Mm -hmm. Listen to that, it sounds just like a flute. Listen to that, it sounds just like a, a string. Um, so, I, I mean, that can be an interesting starting point for something. Mm. So it's kind of like... To go back to the pop and pour that we've been using as an example, it kind of had to sound a bit magical rather than a very literal rendition of... Well, the literal is always disappointing. Mm. It's They always start there. You know, the advertising agency would come and they, they said, well, you know, we needed the sound of a potato chip being eaten and we recorded a whole lot of people, you know, biting a potato chip... <laughs> And, you know, he just couldn't get it. Couldn't get it. Of course you can't get it because it doesn't exist. It's an, it's, a, it's an idea. Your ID 
idea of what that potato chip sounds like is not the reality. Do you think that imagination is perhaps your most important tool as an artist? Uh, imagination is an important tool. Um, I think uh, originality is very important. You know, I see a lot of young people and they have this voice outside of themselves that's judging. It's like, oh, I can't do that because somebody else might think that it's not mm. good. And, you know, the only job we have as an artist is to listen to ourselves. You have to be happy. It's not about anybody else. Ask yourself, are you happy? Forget about what anybody else thinks. And so that is the strength of saying something. I, I don't know. So I think that's important. And that leads to originality because you're not trying to please something outside of yourself. And that gives you the energy, you know, the, the energy to... Uh, I, I mean, the same thing for me. If I hire somebody to do a job, I don't tell them what to do. I don't want them to please me. Yes, I have needs. The deck needs to be that big and it has to be like that. But I want you... You hired them for a reason after all. Yes. <laughs> I, I want them to be happy. And so what are your hopes for how we think about and interact with sound in the future? Well, my hopes is that we get um, better theaters with better... You know, I, I think it's absolutely absurd that all of our concerts involve lugging a lot of audio equipment to a venue, maybe a football stadium, whatever, or a theater, or whatever. And that, uh, you know, you have to set up your lights and set up your stage and set up, you know, everything is brought in and these touring acts are, you know, have truckloads of stuff. And <laughs> it just seems so primitive. Um, so that's that's how I see. So I, I would like to see, you know, theaters uh, develop. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't know if that means that somebody will come up with some kind of generic architectural material mm -hmm. that will allow, you know, many, many theaters to be built or whether it'll be done, you know, one at a time. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know. That. But in the future, I, I would like to see that. I don't know if I'll see that. You know, my future, you know, I'm at a stage of life where I say, well, how much... You know, how many years? It's different when you're my age. Uh, you you see the horizon. You know, you see... Uh, you know, I mean, the time doesn't exist, and yet it does in some way. 